are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ and glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Abracatinos. And sorry for being off last week, uh, but uh, had a wonderful time for my 58th birthday. And uh, it was a great time all around, and so thanks for your patience with the off week, but uh, we're picking up uh, on page 363 this evening, at the very top of the page with the paragraph that begins, be sure then, and we've been talking in, about the importance of stability in the common life and remaining in one's place, and our tendency at times when things become sort of difficult, either with other individuals uh, or uh, internally, that there are often things that will pull us to make a change in our life. Uh, so to move uh, for a monk, it would be to move uh, out of the life of solitude and back to the world or to switch monasteries. And uh, there can be dangers in this because the changing of externals, as we've talked about, can give a bit of a catharsis and can be exciting and make us feel different. It can alter our emotional state for a period of time, but it doesn't necessarily have uh, an impact upon our spiritual life. We take the same person with us wherever we go and the same passions that we struggle with. And uh, so in this hypothesis, they've been very firm about this, that there are only a few uh, reasons where one would make a change and only when it's become very clear and after spiritual guidance has been received, especially when there is perhaps a kind of deep envy where one becomes then the object of malice uh, and uh, that might one might then consider uh, doing it. But otherwise, I think they, they felt that there was an importance in holding fast uh, because it's often in the times that we are tested in our relationships with others that are, we struggle with our passions more, say impatience or anger, that uh, when it's put to the test, we will, will struggle with it. And so again, we're on page 363 at the very top of the page. Be sure then that you do not stray, for there's no other way of salvation than this. And about weeping, you should heed this. If you do not struggle when you are with people to avoid cultivating familiarity with any of them, tears and compunction will not be forthcoming. If you remove yourself from people in order to acquire these perfections, know that you are avoiding the contest and the arena. 
Strive among people, therefore, to overcome familiarity with them, for you will not be able to acquire tears and compunction without struggles, as the apostle says. If a man also strive for masteries, yet is not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Put forth all your effort, brother, and God will help you. And do not forget, as I told you, to maintain humility, obedience, and submission in all your endeavors. For if you do, you will be saved by the power of the Lord. So a couple interesting things in this paragraph. Uh, the first is avoiding uh, cultivating familiarity. Uh, like too much ease, I think, in the manner with which we would treat others with which we are living, taking liberties in regards to how we relate to them. Uh, at times when uh, individuals become familiar to us, that we know uh, their vulnerabilities, their weaknesses, their faults, uh, a kind of familiarity can begin to emerge where we do not treat them with the respect or love or obedience perhaps uh, that we should, that we take advantage of that knowledge that we have of them and begin to develop a kind of contempt for them and use, lose humility in our engagement uh, of them on a day-to-day -day basis. And so we can start treating people with arrogance or flippancy and things such as that. Uh, if you remove yourself, though, he says, from people in order to acquire these perfections. So if we become overly familiar uh, and if we become arrogant and we lose that humility, then our capacity for compunction, true far sorrow for our sins begins to diminish or we lose sight of, of them. Uh, but if we remove ourselves from people simply because we think it's going to give us greater peace or that those gifts will emerge without the distraction of living others, uh, then we are deluded. Because if we have not been fostering the things that give rise to this true compunction in our day-to-day -day life while living with people, uh, why would we imagine that they would uh, somehow magically appear when there is no one around us to help foster the virtues that we need. It's living in community that sort of rubs the rough edges off of us and can help us uproot the, the passions that we struggle with on a day-to-day -day basis. And so if you're living alone, uh, again, you can simply become self-focused or become uh, lazier, lack diligence in the spiritual life and have no one there to challenge you in any way, whether it's in growing in the virtues or remaining uh, steadfast in the, in the spiritual life. And so his final counsel is maintain humility, obedience, and submission in all your endeavors. And so stay where, where you are. Uh, keep a humble attitude towards yourself. Set aside self-will through obedience and submission to those who have responsibility over you. This is where you're going to foster and form the most important virtues in regards to developing this compunction for one's sin. Um, the common life becomes the lens through which we see clearly the things that are in our hearts that we might hide from ourselves or just not be able to, 
to see because of the defenses that we've put up around ourselves spiritually or emotionally. Anything from this paragraph before we move on? Okay. Letter F from the Gerontikon. An elder said that it is possible for a man to live for a hundred years in his cell without learning how to live in his cell. And so I read this one over a bunch of times. <laughs> and uh, But it becomes clear when we understand that really the cell is the heart. And so a person can stay in their cell, that is stay in their physical cell uh, for years on end in that solitude and yet never come to see what is within. And again, this is a kind of warning of moving into solitude too quickly. Uh, how does one to learn to live the life of solitude without having perfected the virtues within us, without over having overcome uh, the passions? How can one pray uh, with a deep stillness, without distraction, a kind of constancy, unless the heart has been formed uh, to pray in such a way? And so a person, if they uh, too soon in the spiritual life, move into a, a life of solitude, they may hobble themselves so that they can live a long life, a uh, hundred years, in fact, in their cell and never produce the virtues that the solitary life is meant to, to produce. So it's interesting to, to see the Desert Fathers not romanticizing or idealizing the solitary life, that even though they did value it and see it as a place where this kind of uninterrupted uh, intimacy and constancy and prayer uh, could develop, that they had no illusions of how one would get there, that the preparation for that way of life goes through uh, the life of obedience and setting aside one's own will and self-judgment uh, how does one engage in the deeper spiritual battle of solitude without having lived it within, uh, to some extent, within the common life? Number two, an elder had a disciple who for many years showed exemplary obedience. Although he had not yet achieved perfection, he desired to live alone. One day he approached his elder and made a prostration saying, Father, let me become a monk on my own. Find a suitable place, replied the elder, and we will make a cell for you. He went about a mile away and found a place. He announced this to the elder, and they built a cell. The elder said to his disciple, here's what you are looking for. Stay in your cell, therefore, and when the need arises, eat, drink, and sleep. Only do not go out of your cell until Saturday and then come to me. After giving him these instructions, the elder went away. The brother spent two days, as he was told, but on the third day, he fell into boredom and said to himself, why has my elder done this to me? He got up and chanted a great many psalms, and after sunset, ate. After praying, he went to sleep on his mat, but he saw an Ethiopian lying on it, gnashing his teeth against him. He left the cell at a run and went to his elder. Knocking on the door, he said, Abba, have mercy on me and open up. 
The elder did not open the door to him until dawn. At dawn, he opened it and found the disciple begging him and saying tearfully, have mercy on me, I beseech you, and allow me to stay, stay close to you. For I saw a fierce Ethiopian gnashing his teeth against me and lying on my mat when I went to sleep, and I could no longer live there. The elder took pity on him and brought him inside, and thereafter he trained him in the monastic life according to his capacity, and he gradually became an experienced monk. So before having reached this level of perfection in the life of obedience, he asked to go to the life of solitude. So prematurely, he enters into it, again, not really and fully realizing the depth of the spiritual battle, that he's unable to persevere even three days uh, uh, without becoming bored. And then at the first sign of spiritual attack, uh, he flees for his life, pounding on the elder's door, begging to get in. So it was kind of a rude awakening for him, uh, but uh, a cautionary tale for everybody who reads it, uh, that uh, we might judge ourselves uh, to be pre well prepared and in our own estimation think that uh, we've made great gains in the spiritual life. But especially in the movement to solitude, uh, obedience and uh, following the, the judgment uh, of one's elder is the wisest course. I think there's always going to be a part of us that yearns for that. And uh, again, I think because of the ways that we sometimes romanticize um, and you know, have this sort of idyllic image of a hermitage next to a lake and the uh, perfect calmness where nobody bothers us and we can, we can live in peace. Um, but it, it isn't like that at all on a spiritual level. Um, that uh, as one who's seeking Christ and engaging in this kind of spiritual warfare that is deeply psychological, and rooted in the thoughts, uh, one could go mad very quickly in this kind of solitude and uh, lose sight of reality altogether. And indeed that happened many times we hear in the stories from the fathers. Anthony wrote, perhaps something should be allowed for different characters or temperaments. Maybe this is a reason Westerners have different orders. Uh, one one might think that uh, you know I think what we find in the East um, is this common vision of uh, anthropology and psychology, you know the the battles that are are fought. That there isn't so much an em emphasis, as you say here, on temperament and personality. That we find a whole lot of that in the West. You're right. And but in among the Eastern fathers, you would have no one, you would never find anyone writing like an autobiography and that doing something like Augustine's Confessions that just didn't, doesn't happen among the Eastern fathers, that they're very much focused upon the spiritual life. And just as their prayer tends to be non discursive and not use of, uh, make use of the imagination so that they don't fill their minds with 
sort of the, this kind of rumination on uh, their own thoughts and the meaning of them or, uh, or the certain events in their life so much where they're putting themselves forward as an example, they would be very wary of that. And part of that is the mindset of the Eastern Fathers, of course, but I think it's part of their spirituality as a whole. Uh, I think in one of the groups last week, we talked a, a little bit about the emergence of the Western orders that do follow particular characters and temperaments and personalities. And one of the reasons uh, that, that emerged, uh, I mentioned a monk named Boniface Lux, L-U-Y-K-X. And uh, he was a Norbertine who became an Eastern Rite monk, Ukrainian Catholic. And he wrote this wonderful book called uh, Eastern monasticism and the future of the church. And he talks about this, uh, about the rise of the Western orders and the diversity there as being very horizontally focused because of the circumstances that the church was facing with the Reformation in particular, that the focus becomes uh, on reacting to what the church was facing. And he, he speaks about this not in uh, in any way diminishing the, the, those orders. But he does acknowledge then, you know, after reacting to those events, how do they persevere over the course of time? What keeps them steady when the charismatic figure is no longer present? You might have his writings or a role, or there's, you're not responding to the same things that gave rise to the order in the first place. And one of the examples that he gave was of the Jesuits, of course. And, uh, and so you don't have that in the East. You have monasticism that is seen as being rooted in the gospel and this understanding of human nature and uh, providing a spiritual path forward that isn't uniquely limited to monks, but that reaches out to all Christians, to all those who are baptized that it's really the spirituality for all people, the ascetic life. Whereas I think in the West, we, we have gone this route with uh, a focus on character, temperament, abilities, talents. And so even when people are discerning these days, they're often thinking, where can I best use my abilities? Or what community am I most attracted to? Or its founder. And I don't wanna say that in a disparaging way either. But it's, again, a much different way of looking at the spiritual life, uh, whereas for the monks, it is really about the life of asceticism and whether it would be the common life or the life of the skeet or uh, the anchoritic life. And, uh, and we see, I think, quite honestly, in our day, some of the Western orders struggling uh, because of a disconnect from their founders uh, asceticism and charism. Well, you know, one of the things that the Second Vatican Council really called communities to do was go back to uh, your, the founders of your community, your original charism, and embrace it more fully and understand why it is that 
uh, the founder established this particular way of life. But in a lot of ways, that didn't take place. So often the ascetic life that surrounded that and was rooted in this larger spiritual tradition was set aside. And then you find a lot of these communities falling apart. As, the, as you begin to see great shifts and upheavals take place in the culture, uh, both the culture uh, that surrounds us and the culture within the church. Whereas I think with the Eastern vision of monastic life, that it's not as subject to those cultural shifts. And some, some might make a offer a critique there and say, well, maybe uh, there's something lacking in the sense of the ability then of the church to respond to those specific needs that emerge in different generations. Uh, but I think one could argue against that. I think what we need in every generation uh, are saints, you know, whether they're living in monasteries or they're married or in the lay state, who are embracing the ascetic life, seeking to live the gospel in all of its fullness, that universal call to holiness. And again, that was part of what the council put forward to us as well. And uh, and we haven't been done a very good job in communicating that, I think. And it's part of the reason I think I am so attracted to the Eastern Fathers, because again and again, I hear that constant refrain, you know, wherever there's renewal within the life of the church, it begins with the Desert Fathers. You know, it's going back to take up the ascetic life, to become sharply focused upon the gospel and on the pursuit of virtue. And uh, and so I think it's what's needed these days. I've I've become to, I've come to question a lot about formation in our day, uh, formation within religious communities and formation within seminaries. It, can it be given, and can it be given in the way that has taken shape in modern times? You know, there's a lot of emphasis upon human formation and making use of many different tools that we have available to us, you know, evaluating people academically, psychologically, uh, how they interact with others. Uh, and uh, uh, but there isn't, you know, this ongoing formation that takes place from one's youth that really prepares one to engage in the uh, religious life or serve as a priest. And they keep adding extra years, these propedeutic years, but often the focus is on, you know, preparing them through the study of philosophy or the basics of the faith, because many of them haven't been educated in the faith beyond confirmation age. And I just, again, I think the whole thing is, uh, it's myopic. I, I think we aren't really seeing the bigger picture, which is we have to go back to the gospel. And fundamentally, we have to be converted. And it's repentance that we should be preaching first and foremost to ourselves. And that should be the door to the seminary. And uh, both the door in and out. and. Uh, and so how you would go about formation, I think, needs to be radically changed, whether it's community, again, common life, seminary, or as for Christians as a whole. And uh, 
So I'm off my soapbox now, but that's my long answer to your short question. Uh, thank you. Father, this was part of what was on my mind. Other than being a kind of an irascible nature, I guess, um, I thought, I'd, look, I live alone. I mm -hmm. hate it. All right. But um, I, was, I think about them in terms of training an apprentice. Mm -hmm. And I think about one of my favorite ways to spend a Sunday in a city away from my folks is to go to Divine Liturgy. Then I walk around Colonial Williamsburg. Mm -hmm. And the great thing is you get to go visit the engravers, the silversmiths, the, the saddle makers, if they have one. I haven't seen them. I, mean, I haven't visited them. But um, there's so many trades. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like they have the same sort of setup where the apprenticeship and journeyman and master. But a man might be attracted to be like an engraver, mm -hmm. but not be attracted to be a cobbler. Right. And I wonder if what would make somebody, the characteristics that would make a good engraver, the, the attention to detail in that particular way might be good for some personalities and not necessarily for others. Well, it's interesting because training to be a priest prior to Trent was more like what you described, which is, was like a tutoring, a mentoring that would take place. Uh, before the whole seminary system sort of comes into play. And again, certainly there could be a kind of unevenness in that formation and training, which there was. And I think the church saw a problem at that time, especially with, again, with, with uh, in, in response to the Reformation, that there was this need to form men in a different way to engage what was going on in the world and in the in the church, uh, but uh, I think there was something also lost in that when you program when you turn things into a program and uh, and make something like formation programmatic and it's not in as individualized, then you are begin relying upon these tools and tests and all these kinds of things, and maybe are neglecting the deeper realities of the formation of the mind and the heart and the way that we're reading about them. Like what the, the fathers, what we read here in the fathers, I never really heard in seminary. And also, but what you get from the fathers, you can't, get from books, even in reading them. Part of it is seeking to interiorize what we read here and seek to live it on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's not even about reading them. You, know, you have to have this environment where you have somebody that is forming them. You know, in the Eastern Rite seminaries, seminaries, they could be doing this extraordinarily well because the St. Cyril Methodius has 10 guys in the seminary. And so the, the, the kind of formation that can take place there is much different than a seminary of like 300 men, you know, in terms of what you would be able to do and the, how, how the priests and others in the formation program could engage and can engage these young men. And, um, but I, I think he can go even further and needs to go even further in the sense of going recapturing the ascetic life and this deeper level of formation that's again rooted in the gospel 
something far more fundamental that we're, we are missing. It's not up here. And I think so often that's where we begin with people. It's in the formation of the heart or moving the mind into the heart in order that one might live like Christ in this radical way. So good question. I'm sorry for the lengthy, <laughs> but you're right on point. You know, the tutor or the mentoring or the tutoring kind of thing, apprenticeship, that always made more, that made more sense to me in college as well. And I, I went to the University of Pittsburgh and some of those early classes, the auditorium would be filled with like 500 people. I think, uh, you know, if you're, and then you're lucky if you get one of those, I even forget what they're called now, uh, sort of like an additional session with a grad student. Yeah, graduate assistant. Yeah, and to sort of help go over what was taught in the lecture. But, you know, the, the schools are so large. So there's something to be said for the small uh, uh, liberal studies college where there, this formation of the person can take place. All right, I think that brings us to number three on page 364. Uh, Marine, oh, Louise, wrote, oh, a couple comments here, I'm sorry. Uh, Louise wrote, was the Ethiopian a demon or a hallucination? Often they're called Ethiopians because it would be a dark figure. And so uh, we're to meet, read it as a demon that he begins to be harassed by a demon. It's just the, the word that they, they use because of the darkness uh, of the image. And then Maureen Cunningham writes, the longest road is from the head to the heart, right? Even though it's a few inches, I think uh, making that journey can take the whole of a person's life. Number three, a brother who lived alone in his cell was disturbed by thoughts when alone. He went to Abba Theodore of Ferme and related that what he had experienced. The elder listened to him and said, go and humble your mind, submit yourself and live with the other brothers. The monk did as the elder told him, but a short while after a short while, he returned to the elder and said to him, I cannot find rest among men either. Abba Theodore replied to him, if you can neither find rest on your own, nor endure other men, why did you become a monk? Did you not become one in order to put up with afflictions? Tell me, for how many years have you been wearing the monastic schema? Eight, replied the monk. My dear brother, answered Abba Theodore, if you've been wearing the monastic schema for, I said, he said, I have been wearing the monastic schema for 70 entire years, and I've never been able to find rest not even for a single day, yet you want to acquire perfect rest in only eight years. Fortified by the elder's words, the monk departed. This is a great couple of paragraphs. I think for anyone who's in, in formation, but, uh, or anyone who's lived you know, the Christian life or in community for 30, 40, 50 years, uh, to hear this, that here's, you know, a monk who's only been at it for eight years, and he's complaining about both ways of life, and is rebuked by Theodore, you know, what, what did you expect? You know, what, why, why become a monk unless you expected to be afflicted, to be tried in fire, 
you know, you're looking for peace in this world where our only peace is to be found in Christ. And, uh, and so uh, he gives him the example of himself that for 70 years he's lived a life and not for one moment, not a single day did he have rest. So always embattled, struggling with his own thoughts, his own passions. And, uh, and so fortified, we are told, the monk departs. Uh, it would hard, be hard not to be uh, humbled and fortified by this, you know, to hear a monk who's been living it for 70 years saying, you know, I haven't experienced one day's of rest, quit your complaining and, and get back into the, get back into the battle, as it were. And uh, so something to keep in mind, because I think often we have this, uh, again, romanticized vision of the spiritual life, and we can become very disheartened I think when we go through not just dry periods, but when we are embattled, so afflicted, or when we find ourselves listless and having no desire whatsoever. And, uh, and so bothered by the thoughts that go along with that. And we imagine the other Christians or you know monks, or nuns, or those who seem to have it together spiritually, as somehow, uh, in comparison to us, being far greater. And in reality, I think what this story shows us is that no, that the uh, the spiritual life is a life of affliction. And the more that we seek out Christ, the more that we are going to be attacked, and uh, in one way or another you know, led into listlessness, you know, led to question God, you know, question the, the reality of our faith or the, the worth of our asceticism, you know, anything that will pull us away uh, from uh, engaging in the spiritual life. And so this story, I think, is the perfect one, you know, to write down in a little notebook for ourselves to go back to in times of difficulty. We could probably have a whole notebook just for that. In times of trial or difficulty or when I want to give up, these would be one of the stories that we would write down in that little notebook, because it's, I think it's a perfect reminder, even if we've been at it for seven decades, not to lose heart, uh, you know, when we have a rough stretch. Any comments about this? Okay. Number four, it was said about Abba Theodore and Abba Lucius, who lived at the Eniton Monastery in Alexandria, that being vexed for 50 years by thoughts of leaving, they mocked these thoughts and said to them, when this winter has passed, we will depart from here. When summer came around again, they would say, when this summer has passed, we will leave. Deceiving the thoughts with these procrastinations, they remained in the place of their asceticism until their repose. So if there's one form of procrastination that is good, it is this one, you know, never making a decision in a moment of desolation. To, and, to, and if we could get to the point where these two months were of mocking the thoughts, seeing them for what they really are, and saying, ah, I'll make that decision 
you know, I'll, I'll hold off till winter. And if things aren't good, then, you know, then I'll, I'll go ahead and leave, you know, as a way of disconnecting ourselves from the emotional power that those thoughts sometimes will give rise to or have behind them that would drive, typically drive us away from our commitments to Christ or uh, to specific ways of, of life. And so I think it's amazing the clarity that they could get to, to be able to do that. Uh, I think it's hard for us at times even to acknowledge what's going on interiorly, uh, let alone to mock the thoughts. But it, it's really teaching us a different way to look at what goes on internally. Because I think there's something about our society and our culture where we've elevated emotion and emotional satisfaction to a certain level. Not that it's unimportant, but we can elevate it to such a level where it, it dictates the th decisions that we make rather than informing us that often our emotions speak of something true. And we might experience anger, frustration, sadness for one reason or another. And so we, are, we should look at whatever truth that is revealing to us. But wisdom would tell us that we wouldn't let the emotion in and of itself make the decisions for us. And so this uh, suspending judgment, and for these monks, it was like six months, an entire or an entire year, entire season uh, to suspend that judgment until that emotional intensity diminishes and we're able to see things with a greater clarity. And again, I think these little stories bring powerful life to the teachings, because for years, I've heard that saying, you know, never make, and it saved me from falling into a pit a thousand times, never make a decision in a moment of desolation. But I think when it, you put skin on it, flesh and blood on it, like the, the stories that, uh, that we see in these two monks in mocking the thought, then you begin to get that. A little, you, you have an insight into how you actually engage in the battle when it arises, because I think that feeling can be so strong, the feeling of desolation can be so strong that it can just take over. Uh, Ernest writes, so does, doesn't it help to have a spiritual director to regularly guide your path? Absolutely. Uh, and as we've seen from the fathers, uh, something essential and for so many of the things that we've even read tonight, that it can be so difficult to see uh, these things on our own, to analyze the self, you know, is a difficult thing because we, can we can't do it objectively. And sometimes merely to speak what is going through one's mind to another shines a light upon something. And, uh, and so an experience, and to speak it before an experienced director, someone who has lived the life is one of the greatest resources we can have. Okay. Uh, before we move on to Ab Isaac. Okay, one more thought here from John. 
There's a book called Talking Back by Evagrius, which has a variation of mocking evil thoughts. He supplies verses of scripture against a whole variety of evil thoughts. Yes, that's a good point. And uh, Evagrius was one of the earliest of the fathers, and so many of the writings of the fathers uh, find their roots in uh, his experience and what he wrote about. So revered uh, uh, deeply, uh, but I, I think he sort of himself was let off the path at some point, and I forget the reason for it, uh, that he's never been canonized, uh, even though his writings are held in, you know, high regard. Uh, but this is a common teaching among the fathers, but they also warn that there can be a danger in it, that for those who are experienced in the spiritual battle, to talk back to the demons, uh, one might be able to do that. But the safer path in the major uh, for the majority of the fathers is simply to turn the mind and the heart to God through something like the Jesus prayer, not to engage in the battle, but to flee. Uh, because we can get twisted up. Uh, the evil one is so uh, adept at twisting our thoughts uh that even when we think that we have exposed what he's doing he he's all uh, 10 steps ahead of us and can trip us up when we think we've overcome him from abba isaac brother no one can conquer the passions except through palpable virtues that is bodily and visible ones Likewise, no one can overcome the pride of the intellect in any other way than by the subtlety of spiritual knowledge or by some godly occupation. For our intellect is volatile, and if it is not tied down by some reflection, it does not cease from wandering. And so in this battle with the passions, we want to be striving at the same time to be forming the opposing virtue. So concretely, we are engaging in the ascetic life in order to strengthen the will uh, to pray without ceasing. So we're engaging in this bodily way uh, in fostering the virtues. Uh, but when it comes to the more spiritual, the passions, especially pride, things become much more challenging, Isaac is telling us here, without our tying our thoughts and our, our minds to some reflection that holds our minds where, it need, where they need to be. And so he says, uh, if a man does not first conquer his enemies, how will he be at peace? And if peace does not reign in his intellect, and remember in English, they're translating this into intellect, but it's the noose, the eye of the heart, the eye of the soul that is purified by the stilling of the thoughts and by the ascetic life as a whole. And so if peace does not reign in the noose, how will he be able to find and to understand how many good things are stored up in peace? And so if this, this eye of the heart is darkened by our passions, if we have not done the groundwork and fought with the ones that are rooted in the bodily appetites, gluttony, lust, avarice, 
And so if we've not laid the foundation and found some freedom there, how do we expect then when we're fighting this more uh, subtle battle that we are going to really experience the peace of the kingdom? So if we're still blind, if the noose is still blind, we're going to be walking blind and fall into to a pit, especially when it comes to something like pride. He goes on to say, for the passions are a barrier impeding the hidden virtues of the soul. And if these passions are not first cast down by means of externally manifest virtues, that which lies within cannot be seen. For a man who is outside the walls of the city cannot associate with those within the walls. Likewise, no one sees the sun in the gloom or the virtues of the soul when they are veiled by the mist of the passions. So, unless the noose has been purified through this ascetical struggle, we are not going to be able to see, again, the more subtle thoughts and temptations, nor are we going to be able to see the virtues that are necessary and how they are to be cultivated. And so we cannot leapfrog the earlier parts of the spiritual battle and the purgation that must take place. Or if you're reading along in the ladder of divine ascent, we can't leap up the ladder, you know, leap 20 steps up in one bound as much as we would like to do. Uh, we have to engage in that fight that can be long and rigorous and some of it lasting the whole of our life in order that we can maintain the, this purity of heart, the purity of the noose, the eye of the heart that allows us to see the things of God, to see the things of the kingdom. And so this is what Isaac is saying about no one sees the sun in the gloom or the virtues of the soul when they are veiled by the midst of the passions. So we, we can't see with a kind of clarity. This is one of the most important parts in understanding the Eastern fathers, the noose, and why we engage in the ascetic life. Again, the ascetical life isn't just about endurance and you know, uh, muscling our way uh, through our struggle with the appetites. It's, you know, certainly that's part of the battle, but the aim, the immediate goal of that struggle is this purity of heart, that we might see the beautiful things of the life and love of God, and that our desire for those things might grow and intensify over the course of time, so that we become more detached from the things that are contrary to God and more attached to love and virtue and the things that endure unto eternity. Beseech God that he might grant you the ability to feel spiritual yearning and aspirations. When this feeling comes to you, you will truly stand aloof from the world and the world will stand aloof from you. That is, every material attachment will cease to be active in your soul. So it's a pretty profound statement. And I think more than, uh, we, I don't want us to misread this in the, in the sense of yearning and aspirations, because again, we have a tendency to overly emotionalize that. Uh, it is rooted, though, in desire, as we've often talked about. 
So we uh, ask God to grant us to fill this spiritual yearning and have these spiritual aspirations that we would desire him and his love, the love of the heavenly bridegroom above all things. And when that begins to emerge, then suddenly our attachment to the things of this world disappear. It all seems to be rubbish. And we wonder, why, why did I give any thought to that, those things at all? Or why did I have anxiety about those things in my life when I can see so clearly now that they end in dust? That the one thing that is important is the quality and the quantity of my love and not the things that I produce in this world or that only endure for our time within this world. Let's see where I left off here. Okay. But it was the wise Lord's good pleasure that those who seek this bread should find it by the sweat of their brow. And this is to our benefit, lest by partaking of it prematurely, we should suffer indigestion and die. Every virtue, therefore, is engendered by another. And if you neglect the first, uh, neglect first to acquire the mothers and hasten to seize their daughters, their virtu these virtues will be vipers to your soul unless you speedily cast them away from you. Wow. Uh, Isaac is an incredible writer. So we're, we go all the way back to Genesis. You know, it's by the sweat of your brow. But now it's been transformed for us through the incarnation, the coming of Christ, that by the sweat of our brow, we, we engage in this work, but not for the things of this world, to feed ourselves with earthly food, with earthly bread, but the bread of life. And, uh, and so through the ascetic life, uh, we gain this benefit. And the benefit that is gained for us is that it, we, we lose the thing that brought us down in the first place, which is pride. Having to engage in this spiritual battle, which is terribly humbling. The fact that we cannot control our basic appetites, even for like food, for, even for a couple hours, <laughs> that, you know, we're so humbled by that that it forces us to engage in this long and difficult spiritual battle. Because if we were to prematurely taste the higher spiritual gifts, the higher virtues, then we might, again, fall into pride, something that could bring it down altogether, imagining that it's simply due to something that we've decided or it has to do with something that we've done that has produced this virtue rather than our abandoning ourselves more and more to the grace of God. So, you know, this view of the ascetic life uh, is not about, we can't view it as, uh, even as, even as we talk about it, climbing up a ladder or, spiritual or a spiritual battle, we cannot see it as abstracted from Christ and an absolute dependence upon the grace of God. And uh, because we see what is at cost here, thinking that we, uh, 
we can seize the daughters, that is the virtues that are produced by the, the mothers, that are, are the offspring of the mothers. If we think that we can take those for ourselves first, then we are going to, uh, how does he put it? They will become vipers to your soul. So acquiring these greater virtues first or thinking that we have actually poisons the soul because they will sting us with pride. We will think again of ourselves as being virtuous, uh, whereas a person who's slogged out this battle and has been humbled and even humiliated by their own poverty is only going to attribute virtue to what they've been given by God. And uh, so, and so again, I can't say enough about uh, Isaac the Syrian. I think he's the perfect spiritual writer. You know, it will produce indigestion, but not only indigestion, but an indigestion that kills you. <laughs> so it, it will not only sour in the stomach, uh, but it will, you know, create a spiritual death. The moment, again, that we take our eyes off of Christ and we become enamored with these virtues as if, you know, they spring from anywhere else but Christ, then we're stung with this poison, like we've been bit by a poisonous snake and we'll die. We'll be like the, the, the Hebrews in the desert. So any thoughts on that paragraph? So powerful. Highlight the whole thing. Okay, letter H from Abba Barsanufius. A brother who lived a life of silence by himself in his cell read the books of the elders that he who truly wants to be saved must first, in associating with people, endure insults, disparagements, and indignities, and in a word, must first rectify his senses and free himself from warfare with them. Only thus will he attain to perfect stillness as did our Lord Jesus Christ, who was first dishonored and unimaginably humiliated, and then ascended the cross, which is the deadening of the flesh and the passions, and perfect holy rest. And so almost echoing what we just read in, uh, from uh, Isaac the Syrian here, uh, that uh, he, this brother enters into a community and he's been living this life for a long time and a life of silence, but he picks up the writings of the elders and reads, uh, oh my gosh, you have to endure all these things uh, before experiencing true freedom. And so we hear, after studying all of this, the Hezekiah's brother said to himself, the poor, I, the poor wretch, have not done a single one of these things, yet I withdrew from human society, having scandalized everyone by my weakness. Could it be then that I ought to return to human company and with God's help carry out all that the Father said, and only then enter into solitude, lest my labor be wasted? He immediately confessed these thoughts of his to the elder. After listening to him attentively, the elder replied, the fathers were right in all that they said, and there's no other way for anyone to be saved 
But since there are many pretexts by which a man can imagine himself to be doing good, and still others to make him ultimately think that he is harming himself, we, he must safeguard himself well. Because you succeeded in living for so many years in solitude, if you return to human society, your mind will give rise to vainglory. Indeed, it is not fitting for you to be in the world, for if you abide there, two evils will be created. So it's interesting, the, the elder, the Hesychus, does not disagree with the, uh, uh, the conclusion of the monk who's suddenly awakened to the fact that he hasn't engaged in the battle that he needed to. Uh, but he says, you know, just as we guard our thought, have to guard our thoughts uh, in one, on one side, we have to guard them on the other as well. So even though you did not enter into this correctly, do not follow the temptation now to abandon the life and re-enter into the world. Because then you will fall into a kind of vainglory. Having lived this life in solitude, you will look at the things of, this, of the world, but look at them with the eyes of pride. So he says, you'll be doing two evils at one thing. You will have neglected the spiritual battle, and then in neglecting it, you'll go back into the world and you'll fall into an even greater pride. Because on some level, you've been exposed to the blessedness of that life and what that truth is. And so in conclusion, he's told, but if you accuse yourself for not having previously done what was essential for ascending the cross, saying, I lived the monastic life without knowing what I was supposed to do, self-reproach knows how to insult and disparage the self. And in this way, it subsequently brings one to who accepts it to the measure of the true cross of asceticism. What a magnificent paragraph, because there's so many people that say to me, at my age, I'm just hearing this for the first time, and there's no hope for, for me. <laughs> and, uh, and they have to be careful, because it's falling into the same trap that this monk was falling into. Well, you know, I've been at it, but I haven't done what is necessary here. And so I might as well just forget about it uh, at this point and go back to the world. Uh, so a person who uh, maybe is in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, just reading the fathers for the first time might be tempted to think that. And the answer would be this final paragraph. No, you know, that we... You, your battle is still there for you to engage in. It's still a kind of asceticism. And you can still uh, reach the measure of, the, of one who's lived it for a long time by humility, by acknowledging the truth about how one has lived one's life or the neglect of the greater things and the more important things. And that this can drive you on in the spiritual life to the point where you're able to give yourself completely to Christ withholding nothing. This image of ascending the cross. It's all interesting. This has come up a couple of times now that the ascetic life and the end of the ascetic life is really just the, the beginning of life. 
that we are dying to self and sin in order that we might love God fully, that we might imitate Christ in the way that we give ourselves to God and others. So we embrace the ascetic life in order that we might bear witness to this self-emptying love of the cross in the world. So the ascetic life, again, is not an end in itself. It's to bring us to that point that we love in an unimpeded fashion. We love in a Christ-like manner. So it's a these are beautiful writings because it uh, addresses so many of the, the critiques that people can bring up about the fathers or the ascetic life as it's often been presented to them which is, you know, uh, in a way that is, you know, sorely truncated. Uh, and, but when you read the full corpus of these writings, you begin to see something beautiful emerge. And uh, they had, again, no illusions about the ascetic life as making them like the green berets of the church. They weren't they didn't see themselves as a higher state. They saw themselves as simply striving to live the gospel or striving to enter the narrow way as anyone in the world should be striving to enter by the narrow way. And, uh, and so somebody wearing a black robe and who goes off to the desert isn't necessarily going to do that in a better way. It might be the way that God has called them to do that, and so they follow it. But St. Anthony was once told, there's a doctor in the city who has reached a higher state spiritually than you. And he goes and searches him out. And it's simply because at every moment, he was seeking you know, to embrace the will of, of God in what was right before him. He was living in that moment so radically that his focus was up upon God in a way that rivaled Anthony in the desert, even though he was living, living in the middle of the city. So we've really got to get away from this notion that these writings and this way of life is meant for those, you know, at these furthest margins uh, of the church. You know, uh, the, again, those in the black robes or those furthest removed, you know, that what they speak of is true of every human heart and should be a, you know part of our desire for Christ. And so I think key in our day, you know, whether it's seminary training or in the formation of the young in the faith is exposing people gradually to the ascetic life and to the what holiness looks like. The lives of the saints, you know, as children are growing up, uh, you know, to gradually expose them to, you know, those who embody these virtues. And then as they age to to be forming their, the vision of their dignity uh, and identity is rooted in Christ in a deeper and deeper fashion. And I'm sorry, CCD, you know, uh, doesn't do that. And couldn't possibly do that. 
you know, to hand over the formation of one's children to a class that happens once a week for an hour is, is just not going to form them. I mean, it's not like it has no value, but it's not going to be able to form them into one who desires Christ with all their heart. It has to be something that they see on a daily basis that is embodied in the life of their parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, godparents, that then creates a similar desire within them. Okay, any final thoughts as we conclude this hypothesis? Very powerful one. So we'll close there for the evening then. Uh, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.